Welcome to episode 24 of Expanding Beyond. Um, Monica is phoning in from her holidays in Italy, um, which is <laughs> cool that she's doing it, but it's also, yeah, I'm sitting here in Munich and it's, I don't know, 10 degrees or a bit more and sunny and then it's raining and yeah, I probably should be somewhere else as well. <laughs> Sorry, 21 <laughs> degrees, sunny. <laughs> beer in the sun yeah, stuff like that at least at least the beer i can match yes that you can match <laughs> <laughs> yes i'm phoning in from my uh, brief holiday before the next job how are you i'm i'm thinking about when i did when i had my last holiday mm -hmm. that was probably the same situation middle of february is probably not as ideal no. as middle of may for that so yeah let's see hopefully sometime in the summer we can go somewhere warm and sunny as well yes yeah and otherwise i'm still playing around with stuff uh, on the side for our innovation day like i said probably last episode every second friday we can try out stuff and this time i looked into visualizing um, sort of a color palette. So what I work on is this project where people can catalog their inks for fountain pens. And there you, of course, have a lot of different colors. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a color, it's basically uh, impossible to properly sort them in one dimension. Because depending on, how, I mean, it doesn't really matter how you look at it, uh, RGB is like, three values um yes. hsl is also three values and now you're trying to collapse this down to uh, one dimension basically mm -hmm. and you end up with weird things and trade-offs and there's this whole huge article i found uh, that basically discusses all the all the options that are out there and that was a fun fun challenge to to build something like that maybe i will revisit this in the future and make it Oh yeah, please. Like 2D or something, some kind of please, radial please, please. graph. That sounds much more fun to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's basically what I did in the end. Again, it comes down to uh, this one one image. I will put a put a link to a blog post, a tiny blog post I wrote, wrote about it. The only interesting bit there, I think, is the uh, screenshot, and then you can sort of see mm -hmm. these tiny stripes of of colors that represent all the inks you have, which I have a lot of, and other people have crazy amounts. I've seen those more. drawers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they <Yeah>. are a lot. <laughs> there, yeah. And that is basically basically it. Otherwise, stuff is going on mm -hmm. work-wise. And on your end, what's your topic? So on my end, what, uh, what I did last week was... Uh, Basically, I mean, that was my last week at Freeletics. I will probably talk some other day uh, about what what it means to uh, to leave a place and how to do that and how to get into a new place. Uh, as I said, right now I'm on holiday and the whole point of the holiday is to turn my brain off in between the two jobs um, yeah. because it's going to be pretty challenging to start anew, therefore... I also, for example, this week, I haven't brought any books that speak about work uh, or anything like that. 
So uh, I have my laptop because I knew I had to uh, I had to record, but otherwise, nope, not doing anything in that, in that <laughs> regard. Um, so also my topic is uh, still about work, but not really related to anything I have done. Um, actually, the the thought was uh, around this topic was coming from reading an article from uh, written by my uh, my now former boss, unfortunately, uh, about uh, how to build and how to maintain and how useful it is to have a culture that accepts uh, failure. As a manager, how do you build an organization that is, a, that is okay with uh, people making mistakes? How do you recover from those mistakes? And how do you transform those events in something that instead, being, uh, instead of being a cost, are actually seen in terms of investment. So how do you turn the narrative around? So that was my idea. Yeah. How do you prevent it from just being a blame game, basically? Exactly. <laughs> yes. It doesn't help. Um, this is like this, these, these uh, blameless postmortems mm -hmm. in uh, I, I guess are part of part of the whole topic uh, where you try to figure out what what happened. And instead of trying to blame the person, you try to figure out what in the system actually happened that that person in the end had to make that decision and why did that happen? Yes. Why didn't the safeguards work? And especially, how do you prevent it from happening again? Yes. Because stuff is going to go wrong. Because if, it, if you knew how stuff would work, then you wouldn't need to um, create the software for it, right? Because... We're not like building yet another house that's basically the same. It's always something new. Um, so stuff is going to go wrong. After mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, uh, it's a very interesting topic, considering that after a few days uh, from the release of that article from my boss, <laughs> the Salesforce incident happened. <laughs> and well, <laughs> that's a mistake. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. Like the, the point of, all of this is that if you are mature enough and as a, as a culture, as a sorry, as an an industry, I think we are actually mature in that in that regard. The point is to recognize that systems are fallible and they will fail. This was something that I mean, I it's one of those things that when I when I read about it, it was like, duh. But until I read about it written down in a book i was like it's also one of those things that's like but that's actually genius if you think about it there's this book i was reading i think i i uh, i quoted it already once in uh, in our recordings uh, in one of the past episodes um it's called release it by uh, mm -hmm. nygaard if i'm not mistaken and yep. At the very beginning, like it's a whole book dedicated to how to recover from failure and how to release confidently in production. And it has a lot of like, it's really interesting because there's a lot of like big projects and like we're talking about stuff at scale. This is gigantic kind of systems. Um, and the very first point that the author makes is it will happen. You can't stop it. And every time you fix something in your uh, in your system, in your processes, something else will fail uh, mm -hmm. at some point. So the only thing that you can do is recover from failure as fast as possible and gain learnings out of it. 
And this is where it comes into place, the blameless postmortem and the fact that it's okay to fail. What you can do is that, like, the, the, as a manager is to make sure that your people know, especially junior people, this is very tough on, I think, I mean, nobody feels happy about, you know, making a mistake. You feel dumb. You feel um, validated in your thoughts about you not being as good as others. You know, hello, imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Everybody, almost everybody is yeah. affected by it. And this reinforces that kind of feeling. So as a manager, that's what you want to make sure that your people feel it's okay. It's okay. It's expected. Don't worry about it. And we'll figure it out. And this is what you want to do as fast as possible. We will figure it out together. How do we get back on our feet? Yeah. Yeah, it's important to so that, that everyone knows that stuff, that it is sort of uh, no, known that stuff is going to go wrong and that it's just you shouldn't feel too stressed out about that stuff and it should be so I, I guess the the important bit there is that instead of trying to prevent it and sort of being surprised that stuff is happening, you mean to figure out a way to properly manage it, I guess. Yeah. So so what I've what we probably already talked about, what I what I see as important is some kind of playbook, some kind of guided steps to say, hey, if something is happening, this is step one. I don't know. You notify whoever, yes. whatever channel, and then you continue with your work and then you give regular updates. Yeah. And that is already, especially for juniors, very, very important to remind them that they also, that it's okay to take a few minutes of your time notifying people that someone is actually looking into this mm-hmm. um, and then do your work instead of frantically trying to figure it out and sort of going re- completely radio silence. Silence. Yes. I mean, especially in this time where basically everyone is working from home, that is, of course, even more critical because you can't walk, walk over to someone's desk <clears throat> and ask yeah. them, right? Yeah. There I can think about a few things. Like I'm thinking about um, in terms of... Uh, Avoiding, as you said, like there's the step of notifying everyone. There's the step of um, making sure that information flows. And of course, the first, uh, first and foremost priority is uh, that of um, is that of recovering from the outage. What you have as a second priority is that of make sure that you record as much as possible. If it doesn't get in the way uh, of yeah. recovering from from the outage record what is happening while the ex the um emergency is happening because usually then what happens in big in big outages is that it's not only one thing that goes wrong but there's a cascade of things because <laughs> exactly yeah like right when one thing le- leads to another and that's the that's what you want to also try as much as possible to crystallize so that you know what are the faults in your um, uh, in your system. What you can do to try to avoid as much as possible this kind of uh, of uh, incidents is one of the reasons why we have test. <laughs> like it's a very high level kind of thing because mostly it's about how the application is supposed to behave. Usually, big outages are not caused by 
small bug into the user interface, for example. It's not necessary. It's not always a feature that goes wrong and doesn't behave as, as intended. It's usually something deeper. But tests are already a first, uh, a first defense against this. What I'm thinking also is monitoring. That is important. I remember at the very beginning of my, my um, adventure at, at Freeletics, sometimes, because we have so many users, very often we were notified of problems by customer support. Because customer support was starting to get emails from, from customers saying, hey, this is not working, like this is an emergency, blah, blah. And that was feeling, was making me feel like a failure because mm-hmm. like we should have noticed before. Yeah, and not only that, right? Because with a proper monitoring, you also get so much more insights into what exactly is, I don't know, failing or slowing it, the system down. And without it, it's it's kind of, I wouldn't even, in certain cases, I wouldn't even know what to do without proper monitoring. Yes. I mean, you don't know where the problem is, yeah. literally. Uh, so, so there's definitely that. And monitoring can help you pinpoint a problem because it's really like triangulating an issue. I mean, sometimes it's pretty evident because, oh my God, we are returning, I don't know, countless uh, four to nine. I mean, that's obvious. It's like, that means that the authorization system is not uh, working properly. We have, I don't know, maybe some, um, we have released a version of the client that doesn't uh, doesn't work with the authorization system that we are currently uh, using. So the, some stuff can be simple, let's say, but when you have something generic, like you have too many 404s, that's not even an error. By the way, that is a very... I've already swore on this product. It's a very bitchy error in terms of HTTP uh, error code <laughs> because it can be it can mean that the system is not able to digest your request or it can literally mean that there is no such resource there. It can be tricky to uh, to uh, figure out what is uh, what is going wrong. So you have sure. to pair that with other things. <laughs> and, uh, uh, monitoring is uh, is really something that is uh, that is important uh, at different level. It's not only at the application layer, but you can also have it at the infrastructure layer and then see the things uh, how they uh, how they add up together. Yeah, yeah, and, and especially if you start splitting stuff up and you have multiple systems, then sometimes it, at some point you just have to switch over to not have this monitoring based on the application which uh-huh. is already good, but have something overarching where everything goes to. Yeah, there's a very cool feature. Uh, I mean, I'm not paid by New Relic for saying this, but there's a very cool feature in New Relic uh, that allows you to track a request across multiple uh, services. Yeah. So you can really track what a user is being do- is doing uh, on uh, in your in your system along the across the different uh, the different applications that you have. And that helps a lot also figuring out if you have cascading errors, this kind of stuff. It's uh, where are the bottlenecks uh, also. One thing that was funny about the Salesforce incident was that uh, I was reading this article and uh, the author was was like, it's always DNS people. It's always DNS. <laughs> and actually, if I have to think about the biggest outage we had in Freeletics uh, since, uh, since, since I remember, it was also about DNS. <laughs> yeah, the issue with DNS is, of course, with so many layers of caching, if something goes wrong, then fixing it can sometimes be very, very hard. And 
can take a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. We also <laughs> no, no, this wasn't DNS. This was SSL certificates. It was actually Heroku messing up the SSL certificates. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they also had. It, it's 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 always nice to see how automated systems are always better, right? So on Heroku, um, if you have a custom domain, and uh, then the SSL certificates are handled by Let's Encrypt, and they're automatically rotated. But if you have a app on on their domain, so whatever subdomain .com, then that is that SSL certificate is updated manually by them. And they messed it up last time. <laughs> and they had to sort of step back and, and redo stuff. And then they, obviously, in theory, you shouldn't use those HerokoApp.com as um, subdomains probably in production. Maybe that's one of the reasons why. Um, but if you do, like we did in certain circumstances, then Heroku can break a lot of things. Apparently. <laughs> There, if I'm thinking still in terms of like, what can you do to avoid um, have, or as much as possible to avoid this kind of problems. One tool that I've been using uh, since uh, I do this for like very big projects. I think that's where it, it's the most um, valuable. It's a pre-mortem. Mm -hmm. Really trying to think about all the things that can go wrong about that specific system that you are designing, that specific project. It's like, it, it can it can be also not only, can be not only like technical things, it can also be, for example, you are, you want to release a, a new product and, and this product is something that uh, is delivering content to the user. A potential problem could be something like we don't receive the images for the, uh, for the content in time, and then you cannot you cannot release, let's say, uh, air quotes. Uh, yeah. And out of all those problems, then you categorize them in terms of like uh, severity, and you try to figure out how can we recover from those uh, from those from those problems. And you can already set up, put in place, a, uh, or set up a testing strategy against those problems. And if they are unlikely to happen, then you can also make calls in terms of trade-offs as like, okay, the project is running long, for example, do we really need to care about this thing? Like we, we know that it's a risk, but how likely it is to, uh, to appear that kind of risk. So if it's, even if it's high risk, if it's low chance, then it's like, okay, we'll take a risk. But you make informed decisions. You are trying. Yeah. You are thinking about the consequences of what you are doing. Less yolo. <laughs> exactly, going into it uh, with your eyes open, basically. Yeah. Um, and I also found that this is. I often find this is important when you start um, sort of splitting out services that you actually yeah. think about all the failure modes. How many systems are going to go down when your new system is going down? Yeah. And then you can think about. If basically all the rest of your infrastructure goes down, and when that service goes down, then it is either authentication <laughs> or it's a system that shouldn't be a separate system, basically, is how I yes. would categorize it. One thing I would add, both for postmortems and pre-mortems, is that to this time, I think, to, to this day, with, or at least in my experience, 
they are still considered very much as technical tools. So I see engineering departments using them, engineering teams. What I would claim is that it would be useful sometimes when when uh, when appropriate to include also other other team members uh it could be i don't know stakeholders it could be uh pms it could be some of your managers like middle management imagine like you're the director of i don't know design or whomever um yeah. because these kind of uh, uh tools can help in also uncover issues in the um in the way the organization works and uh, and that will then in turn be extremely useful to reform uh, those processes or at least know that there are those uh, hurdles this is something that we will always have to face yeah i mean just like retrospectives can yes. e can even be interesting and helpful for other departments There, I have to say that, for example, for Linux, we have used, we are at this moment using retrospectives for many different things. This doesn't, uh, it's not a tool that it's used only in the product teams that practice Chrome. It's like whenever there's something that is um, coming to an end as a cycle or uh, as a as an experiment that we're doing on the on the organization, someone uh, we have a very strong Agile Academy someone does indeed organize a retrospective on that specific uh, thing. So it could be also next week, actually. Yes, it hasn't happened. Next week, um, we'll have a, a, a retrospective on the past six months between the uh, management group of the crew, so the crew leadership, let's call it this way. Uh, that's how we call our product teams. And uh, the middle management of our department. So this means our directors, our um, also our uh, CPTO. So we will all be in one room and discuss what happened during the past six months. What can we do? Uh, you know the usual questions. What can we do better? What what have we done great? What mm -hmm. sh we should stop doing? And and these can be very simple things. How do we enhance the communication between the the different layers of management, for example? Uh, how do we present our results in a different way, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, definitely yeah. retrospectives are useful more than just for the end of the sprint. Yeah, it's just that it sort of comes out of engineering and sometimes it's, mm -hmm. it gets forgotten that you can also translate this in other places. And how can people do it if they don't know about it? Yes, I guess. definitely. The next thought was fundamentally a retrospective is kind of like a postmortem. Like very yeah. high level, we don't we don't look for the specific root cause or something like that. But in a way, it feels that way-ish. Um, mm, that's true. What could look like a pre-mortem from uh, from that point of view? And I was I was having this conversation with my uh, with my boss lately. I didn't know about his article on the failure accepting culture, but um, we just ended up discussing what what was going on uh, because of this mistake we made. What I was telling him is like that I believe that as a manager, it's as important to not only tell your people that it's okay to make mistakes, but also share with them the fact that you don't have to be certain of everything to do your job. Like very often, 
when when people talk about management and leadership, they say, yeah, you have to bring clarity to your people. You have to uh, make sure that they feel comfortable, that uh, you protect them from whatever is going on out there. Mm-hmm. And yes, but uh, in my opinion, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not. I mean, if you, if you phrase it, you have to bring clarity. I mean, you just have to figure it out, right? You you don't have to do it yourself. You have to. Exactly. Sometimes you just have to challenge your team, right? <laughs> yes, this was exactly my point. Uh, they are the experts. What what I think it's important because there's a lot of acceptance that needs to be done, not only in terms of uh, failure, but also of ignorance. It's fine not to know everything. And the fact that as managers, I've been seeing this narrative that you have to be the kind of like know-it-all because that will make your people feel more uh, at ease because they don't have to worry. Oh, I'll figure it out. Don't worry. I'll take yeah. care of this. I don't that know. is what I don't believe. Um, it's fine to share my opinion that you also don't know. That's fine as long as you don't show or you don't you yourself know that it's there's nothing to panic about. I was like, I have no idea how to solve this thing, or I have no idea how to uh, address this next meeting that is going to happen. But the point is that we will figure it out. We'll find a way. Yeah. And I think that that brings, in my opinion, more more confidence in in people because one of the biggest realization when I became a manager was that like myself a lot of them a lot of them uh, again air quotes they also don't know like people make stuff up all the fucking time yeah. and that's okay that's okay because there's no like if you have 100% certainty about something it, it can come from two things you are deluding yourself or <laughs> you have been there already so I, I would actually formulate this even stronger, but maybe this is just one of my sore spots of people talking about stuff that they have no idea about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is it is okay to project this this aura of knowing stuff as long as people buy it, right? Mm-hmm. Once once that breaks down, that's probably not a good place to be uh, as a person where mm-hmm. people then don't even. Um, sort of behind your back they say yeah that's what he's saying but he probably doesn't even know but they don't dare to tell it to your face yeah that's probably even worse and just sort of as a personal opinion i'm just this is one of the things that has always annoyed me when people were talking shit basically (laughs) yes there's also this this further step like one day uh my uh, my boss asked me like why were the your colleagues, because it was the, a group of managers, engineering managers within within Freelance. Why do you think nobody spoke up in that meeting? Like I was talking, but nobody was challenging me. Nobody was ten, like literally saying anything. And I was like, because people perceive you as you know, and therefore, if this person knows, what's the point? I don't know. Therefore, I'm not going to speak up because my feeling is that the other person knows better than me. So who am I to actually challenge that person? I don't know. This person shows all the time that they know everything. How can I even, it's like, it's less likely that someone will step up and, and call bullshit on, on your idea. So if 
the best idea comes from uh, be, having been challenged, having been, as I say, very brutally being punched until it becomes the best idea. If you want to have that kind of environment, you have to show that you, by default, don't know everything. It's a yeah. very fine line to, to walk because you also don't want to look like you are always self second guessing. That's the, the word. Yeah. Second guessing yourself because then can be perceived as the opposite. It's like, it, does this person even know what they're talking about? They're always second guessing whatever they're saying. So, eh? But I think the, the personally, the, the most confidence I can think of is uh, showing actually that it's fine not to know. And you are still making decisions. You are still trying to figure out how things work and and how things can uh, can progress can be done. Yeah, I think that that part is 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 actually working where I work right mm-hmm. now because as a team we have sort of uh, talked to management and said, hey, this one part of uh, our architecture that is just. <laughs> Re- that that's just a mess no one likes it it's very hard to maintain um it's basically no one fully understands it and then management came back okay um we're not against sort of finding something new but here are the points that we we would need to know from you as a team before we can make a decision basically and i guess this is the this is sort of the at least to me that this one way of of exhibiting this this kind of culture where you say okay we are sort of in the end going to be the one ones that are being responsible for that decision but you have to provide us with all the information we we need to actually make the decision that's a that's a very good point yeah with with the obvious danger of course that you have to have a teams that you really trust yes right? this is fundamental yeah that's a that's Thank you, because I would have completely forgotten about like about speaking about this. But that is the the underlying principle yeah. for everything. That that's the foundation of everything. You have to. It, it's it's intertwined. It's like this kind of behavior will come if people trust the organization, if they trust their peers, if they trust their manager, that it's going to be okay to share those things, and vice versa. From these kind of um, processes and and practices and uh, and attitude, trust will come because people know that you are human in the end. Yeah, and of course, as as management, you, you also have to. There's again this fine line to walk because on the one hand, you want to trust your team that it, that they basically as a team know what they're doing and what they're telling. On the other hand, at some point, you have to sort of on some level double check that this is all this is all checking out right you you don't want to be the person who is uh, on the one hand micromanaging the people yeah obviously on the other hand you also don't want to be 100 percent hands-off i guess i mean that's <laughs> i don't know <laughs> maybe that's why i'm not the manager <laughs> because i would no no i totally agree with you like there think about how critical systems are run Think about what happens when uh, NASA is sending people to, to, to space or how in Japan they conduct their uh, train network. You have people saying something 
like, okay, we're turning on the engine X. I'm just saying random bullshit at this point, but you get mm-hmm. you get my point. Like we're turning on engine A. We're now uh, sending pressure to this blah, blah, blah system, et cetera, et cetera. And someone is double checking all the way that those are the right steps and repeating those steps after them. It's not for lack of trust. It's just that we are humans and we do make mistakes and that's fine. (laughs) So it, it goes back to that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Of course, you and 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 it sort of goes back i guess from a management style you sort of have to yeah i mean it's yeah it's basically the same thing you have to allow your people to make mistakes because mistakes are being made and if they are not the ones making the mistakes then it's you as the manager who is exactly. making them for them <laughs> there i have to say that i had this conversation with a with a friend of mine she is a, a cmo and uh what she says to me is like, uh, she gave me this advice. It's like, what I tell my people is that um, I will be in the line of fire for them all the freaking time, every single time. But I have to know. Mm-hmm. I have to know what's going on because, and I have to be at, at least informed about important decisions. Like, it's not every little step of the way, but I have to be informed about critical uh, and important points of the decision-making process because then I can be in the in the line of fire for them. If not, then I wasn't the one that actually took that decision and then it's your responsibility. It's not mine anymore. Yeah. And it can be seen as brutal, but that's, uh, that's the, the point. Like we have to, as, as employees, uh, as reports, let's say, we have to get to a point in which we work with our manager in such a way that, again, you feel that you are working back to back. Like this person has your back and you have theirs. That's the kind of relationship that, in my opinion, you have to build with your with your team and with your reports and with your manager so that you can literally, well, that's not figuratively, uh, <laughs> but you can fight in a dark room and just have nobody getting shot by friendly fire. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> yeah. There is a very interesting technique that my uh, my boss, he was also the, he is still the one leading the our operation system, uh, operation uh, uh, team that he goes through when doing critical, critical changes. Uh, I, I'm thinking like lately we have done something like, I don't know, database migration, um, database upgrade. And what it does, this is mutuated again from the Japanese. They write down the steps of what is going to happen. That's the procedure. And then they sit down before actually going through the procedure to make, to make it happen. And they read all the steps. And people have to acknowledge and read and make sure that they do understand what's going on. And they do this like three, four or five times until it becomes automatic. Yes, we know what is going to happen at that point. And this is also something that I've noticed the uh, pilots of um, shuttles, do. they go through the procedure so many, time, uh, so many times that they know by, ha- by heart 
what's going to happen next. And they can do it automatically because in the moment in which panic strikes, your brain has to be, has to be on autopilot mm -hmm. so that you make the right things. I was noticing this when I was in Japan. I was wondering what people were doing. Like these are the uh, train controller, I think. I don't conductors. know. What, conductors. Thank you. Uh, these are people that are on the um, on the docks on the uh, of of the of the train. And when the train is incoming or going out of the station, they say out loud and they point out with their fingers, with their hands what is the movement that they need to do mm -hmm. or what is going to happen next. So now this door opens and they actually signals with their hands that that door is going to be opening from left to right. And then the passengers are going to come out, et cetera, et cetera. And they do this for all the operations that are going to happen until the train departs. Because apparently this kind of behavior reinforces in our brain the the proper sequence of actions and doesn't it lowers the chances of you making mistakes because these uh, these tasks are so automatic they do them hundreds of times a day and it's easy for your attention to slip yeah yeah the the human brain is is a curious thing right yeah uh, uh, I forget what the book is called there's also one from from Andy Hunt. Mm -hmm. The pragmatic programmers about learning, and there he also explains how it's just a huge difference if you type something out on the computer, if you write it down with your hand, if you say yes. it, say it out loud, it all sort of activates completely different parts of your brain. And I would assume that this is sort of the same or a similar kind of things where where it just is it is just different, even if you I don't know wouldn't feel like it's different from just imagining it or saying it out loud. Yeah. Yeah, pragmatic thinking and learning. Yeah, that's what it's called. So yeah, so my advice would be try to also research what happens in other in other industries, especially in in uh, in Japan. <laughs> in Japan, for sure, because they know how to deal with processes and stuff like that. But in general, you would for... assume you would assume this stuff could also be found in Germany, but no. Really? <laughs> I don't know. Isn't it the one of the um, I don't know, stereotypes that everything has to be uh, organized and stuff like that. In yes, it is. So, but somehow. Somehow it's not Japan. <laughs> yeah, somehow it's not Japan and Kanban didn't come from Germany. So my advice would be if you are interested, especially in these topics, uh, it would be look what other industries are doing where actually lives are at stake or big money. Because those people have it figured out because of such high stakes, yeah, and then you can to, apply yeah. right those mm -hmm. uh, those principles and those practices to your job, and it doesn't have to be perfect, but it definitely gives a big hand. That is true. All right, this sounds like a perfect ending for this episode. Yes. So that we don't have to cut out another ten minutes of of us <laughs> rambling <laughs> rambling about yet another topic. <laughs> Yes, we'll, we'll reserve that for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, we'll make a full episode out of it. Uh, all right, where can people find you, Monica? So people can find me on Twitter. Um, if you want to appreciate my live tweeting about Eurovision, um, at KFMolly with an I. 
you can find me on my personal website at uh, monicag.me. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn with my surname, nothing fancy, GitHub with uh, Nirnaeth, like on that too. Same. Cool. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter as UJH. I didn't really uh, post about Eurovision. I only watched the uh, Icelandic video uh, a few times because the it's just such a cool video. It's with, glorious. Yes. <laughs> it's this amazing um, Power Rangers uh, music video, basically. And that's basically where you can find me. And if you want to get in touch with us as uh, the podcast, you can email us at hosts at expandingbeyond.it or also on Twitter as podcast underscore EB. Yes. And that's it for today. Have a lovely day, people. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.